The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now we're going to get to hear from Lee Eric Fesco today, who um, is a pastor of discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, join me in reading God's word. We're reading from Acts chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 23. So the conclusion in verse 30 says this. This is God's word. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and in turn, I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me one more time before we go into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, you would open our hearts to receive the words that you have set aside on the pages of Scripture. Thank you once again for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, once again, my name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the pastor of discipleship at Christ Pres, and it's a, a joy to be with you once again. Uh, one of my uh, favorite movies, actually one of the more popular movies, not necessarily my favorite, but one of the more popular movies of all time is a movie called Titanic. Uh, It's a movie loosely, and I do mean loosely, based upon actual events of the maiden and final tragic voyage of the RMS Titanic in April of 1912. In 1997, James Cameron directed a movie, and to date... It has earned some $2.2 billion in total revenue. It's won 11 Oscars, making it one of the most popular movies of all time. Uh, Again, I've seen this movie, and I saw it when it first came out in the theaters. It was a good movie, I suppose, but it has one of the worst endings a movie could possibly have. And that's even aside from the the fact that the ship sank. They somehow managed to make the, the ending even worse than the historical ending. They managed to make it worse. Now, I don't mean to give it away if you haven't seen it. You've had 26 years to go see it. But at the end of the movie, after the ship goes down, the female lead in the movie, Rose, played by Kate Winslet, finds a giant plank or a door of some kind or a piece of the ship near for her to float upon the icy waters. Whereas Jack, the male lead in the movie, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he hangs on the edge of the door in the icy water while Rose stays nice and dry atop the debris. 
Well, to make a long movie very short, Rose survived and Jack perished in the icy waters. Now, the most disappointing part about the whole movie was that, at least to me, it seemed like there was plenty of room on that hunk of wood. Plenty of room where Rose floated. Now, both of them, I think, could have gotten on that piece of wood and survived. And, and it ruined the whole movie for me. What a terrible ending. It was miserable. Such a disappointing ending to what was otherwise a good film. It certainly wasn't the ending I suspected. Now, we've reached the end of our sermon series on Acts. This is the last installment. We just read the final verses of, of, the, of the book of Acts. We decided to break Acts into three parts covering a section of the book over the last three years. It's taken us almost three years to get to this point, and now we've reached the end. Moreover, the narrative, just the narrative that we've been in now for the last several weeks, uh, starting when, when Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem, that's been one continuous narrative, and we've been in that narrative as a church since October 1st. And today, we've reached the end. The exciting conclusion of this narrative, how is it going to end? Well, at first glance, I'm afraid you might be disappointed. If you decided to read through, let's say, the Gospel of Luke, tremendous Gospel, right? And you, and you chose to read it in the same way you would read any other book, you'd probably be so excited to learn that Luke wrote a part two, which is called the Book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. Now, to be clear, he didn't give it that title. It was a letter to someone named Theophilus, but he does refer to the Gospel as his first book. So, when we read Acts, it's like we're reading a sequel to a great book. Now, once again, we finally reached the ending, and for the last seven chapters or so, we've been reading about the Apostle Paul making his way to the most powerful man in the world, Caesar. How did that happen? All the way back in chapter 21, Paul decides to go back to Jerusalem. He'd been traveling all over the known world, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and under the persuasion of the Holy Spirit, he goes back to Jerusalem. And from the moment he sets foot there, things go from bad to worse. The, the Jewish leaders pursued every opportunity to kill him. They tried to assassinate him unsuccessfully because they, they, they couldn't legally kill him. They, they couldn't kill him because the Jewish leaders were under Roman rule. And so if anyone was going to exercise capital punishment, it would have to be done so by the Romans. So back and forth, back and forth, Paul has gone between the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. The Jewish leaders want him killed for what they perceive to be uttering blasphemy against their sacred religion for suggesting that Jesus was the hope of the resurrection. Many of them believed in the concept of the resurrection. And so Paul says, this is the hope of the resurrection. Jesus is it. Jesus is the final answer to the, that question you're asking. So, so they would send them back to the authorities, uh, the Roman authorities, who essentially would say each time, I, I don't think this man has done anything deserving death. And in the course of all this, Paul, who was a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal his case all the way to the highest authority in the land. He would appeal to have his case heard and decided by Caesar. It was his prerogative to do so, and so he, so he claimed it. So for the last seven chapters, the, the tension has been building. The tension has been building and he's been moving closer and closer to Caesar. And again, if you haven't read ahead, you must be wondering, what's he going to say to Caesar? What's he going to say? He's going to tell him a few things, I'd imagine. He's going he's to tell Caesar, the most powerful person in the world, he's going to tell him about Jesus. Paul is going to witness to Caesar. I can't wait to read and see how this goes. And let me tell you, Getting to this point has not been without its drama. 
Just in the last seven chapters, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, subjected to endless trials, imprisoned in Caesarea, threatened with assassination by the Jews, and then nearly drowned in the Mediterranean. He was shipwrecked with the other prisoners and soldiers. And because the soldiers didn't want to risk the prisoners escaping, they resolved to kill the prisoners. But for one centurion who prevented them from carrying out that plan, Paul would have died. And then if all that weren't enough, if that's not enough drama for you, Paul is then bitten by a poisonous snake, a bite which all the locals were amazed he survived so much though, they, they thought he was a god. Now, after all that, after all of that, Paul finally arrives in Rome, and now we're expecting to see him before Caesar, which history tells us at the time it was Nero. Can you imagine? What is Paul going to say to Nero? Well, I guess we'll never know. If you're looking to turn the page in your Bibles to see what happens in chapter 29, if it's like my Bible, you're not going to find it. All that buildup and no dialogue between Paul and Nero. You know, it, it seems to me that would have been an important detail to include in all of this. It seems like that would have been an important conversation to record. It seems to me that would have been some dialogue that we would want to know that would be useful for even for us today. We don't get it. Are you disappointed with that ending? The book is over. That's it. History tells us that the encounter happened, but it's not recorded in the pages of Scripture. We have to rely on extra-biblical sources to inform us how all this comes to a conclusion. History tells us that, yes, Paul eventually had an encounter with Caesar. History also tells us that Caesar let him go. And Paul made his way back out into the mission field and perhaps made, made, it, made his way all the way to Spain, which he tells us in Romans 15 that I hope to go to Spain. We, maybe he did. But then history also tells us that he was arrested again and yes, eventually martyred for his faith. But none of those details are included in the pages of scripture. Why not? Why don't we get that? In God's sovereign design, with his unmatched providence, when he miraculously brought together the canon of scripture, why didn't he give us more details on the life of Paul? Why does the book of Acts just end right here? Well, believe it or not, when the Lord inspired the writing of his holy scriptures, he, his goal wasn't to make a screenplay. So what was his purpose? What was the primary purpose of the book of Acts? Why did the Lord in all his wisdom include the book of Acts as it is in the canon of scripture? What was the point? Was it to lead us to a heated debate between Paul and Nero? Apparently not. Th then what, why is it here? Why did he give it th to us this way? The book of Acts is in the Bible because of a promise made by God all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 15, and then most clearly in Genesis 17, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraim, which means father of many nations. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see, the Lord, his promise to his people 
from the very beginning was about the nations. Though the Old Testament largely centered around the people of Israel and Judah, the design from the onset of redemptive history was about the Lord placing his mark upon his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Israel and the Lord's affection for her wasn't the main thing. That's not the main point of the Bible. It was the shadow. Israel was the shadow of what to come. A heavenly shadow of a heavenly kingdom that would cover the four corners of the world. And this is what the book of Acts is about. And this is where the book of Acts ends. Picture this. Picture a child jumping on a trampoline in slow motion. Say you've got this footage of a child jumping, jumping on a trampoline on slow motion. And now that trampoline is fully extended downward, about to thrust that child high into the air. This is where the, the, the book of Acts stops with the church about to spring forward to the rest of the world. That's what the book of Acts is about how the church sprang forth. So here's our, mer our, our first major takeaway from the, from the book of Acts. I only have two points today. Here's the first. God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's purposes will not be thwarted. His will will be done. Despite the forces of evil working against him, his plans will not be derailed or even slightly shifted. The Lord is the Lord of history, and he will not be stopped. John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Acts, notes how Scripture is full of examples of the devil seeking to thwart God's saving purpose through his people and his Christ. He tried through Pharaoh to drown the baby Moses, through Haman to annihilate the Jews, through Herod the Great to destroy the infant Jesus in Bethlehem, and through the Sanhedrin to stifle the apostolic witness and smother the church at its birth. And then through the storm at sea, he attempted to stop Paul bringing the gospel to Rome, the capital of the world. All these events were apparent obstacles that might prevent Paul from reaching his destination, but he wouldn't be stopped. He would not be stopped. Why? Because in Acts 23, 11, Jesus promised Paul that he would reach Rome. It can't not happen. Jesus said it would happen. By God's providence, Paul reaches Rome safe and sound, but he arrived as a prisoner. He arrived as a prisoner. That's not how you or I would have written this. We wouldn't design the story to go this way, but this is how it went. This is how God's sovereign design unfolded. Why? Why couldn't Paul just walk into Rome and say, I have an announcement to make. I would like you to hear me. Please listen. Why couldn't he have done that? because God had other plans. In Acts 27, 24, the Lord told Paul that he would stand trial before Caesar. That's how we know it happened, because God said it would happen. Only prisoners stand trial. And if Paul were not on trial, would the gospel have ever made it to the highest court in the land? I don't see how. But God could have made another way, right? He could have made some other way for Paul to meet Caesar, right? Perhaps, yes. But think about this. Paul as a prisoner for more than two years, two years in prison in Caesarea, two years under house arrest in Rome, and then another six months or so voyaging from Caesarea to Rome. What a giant waste of time to have the greatest evangelist in the, the world has ever known just wasting time in lockdown. But that's just it. It wasn't a waste of time. Think about what else came out of his time as a prisoner. 
Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And here's what we get out of those books. Here's what we get out of those books that shape the way we as Christians understand what life in Christ is all about. Because of these letters, we know that when we come to faith in Christ, we're not guaranteed smooth sailing. Seldom. Seldom get it. When we come to Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, what the substance of those letters tells us, it tells us something of who we are. They tell us that though we may face trial, though we may face imprisonment, though we may face death, we do not become unraveled. We do not become undone because we know we have already risen with Christ. So, so what could possibly threaten us? It's in Paul's confinement, his confinement as a prisoner, bear witness to the fact that his eyes were opened to see the victory of Christ and the fullness of life, power, and freedom which is given to those who belong to Christ. And you know what? We, we get that too. We, we belong to Christ too. And so we bear witness to what Paul went through and we can say, you know what? The same would apply for us because we are children of the living God and he's placed his mark upon us. So you see, the Lord's will is not impeded. It will not be stopped. And though it works itself out painfully, it works to conform you to his character. It brings about the peace that surpasses all understanding. God's will is done always. And it always brings about growth. It always brings about sanctification in the lives of those who trust in him. His will is always done. And his will is always for your sanctification. God's purposes will not be thwarted, and you are a part of his purposes. Second, why was the book of Acts given to us? What's the point of the book of Acts, if not to give us a good story with a, with a happy Hollywood ending? The book of Acts teaches us something about those who hear and receive the gospel. The book of Acts teaches us something about those who hear and receive the gospel. This is also an extension from what God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. And this one, this one at first is going to be hard to hear and even harder to wrap your mind around. Have you noticed that with every stop that Paul makes along the way in the context of trials and testimony, he always at some level finds his way back to a Jewish audience. He testifies to the Roman officials, but the Roman officials always bring back the Jewish leaders, and Paul makes the same appeal to them over and over. He says, this is what we saw in our scripture passage today. Listen, I, I hold to the same law that you hold to. I, I hold to the same prophets that you hold to. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is what the law and the prophets have been pointing to the whole time. He's here. Jesus is the Messiah. He's here. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul sees it. Paul gets it. But what about his Jewish audience? Look what happens in, in uh, this is from today's passage, verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. It's almost like it says, he made one, one last statement. I want you to hear the gravity of that verse. Paul makes one statement. He makes this statement, and soon thereafter, the book of Acts ends. After pleading with the Jewish leaders to believe in Jesus, after pleading with the people, his people, 
whom he said about in, in Romans 9, 3, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. To these people, his Jewish audience, he says, second half of verse 25, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let me tell you, this is heartbreaking. This is devastating. That's what he's saying to them. This is the third time we read these words in the scripture. The first time were the words when they were given to the prophet Isaiah by the Lord. And then Jesus says these words again when he's explaining the meaning, the significance of him teaching in parables. Some of you will see, some of you won't hear. Paul is repeating these words. What's he saying here? He's saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. He's saying a word of judgment here. Have you ever been in so much trouble with someone that, that saying sorry doesn't even begin to scratch the surface? For quite some time, we've had a device in our home that monitors internet usage. It's a safeguard that we use for our, our teenage boys. And, and not only does it monitor traffic and filter out potentially questionable content, it also automatically sets time limits for them. So my kids, when they reach their time limit, it shuts down the internet for them. My boys have affectionately called this device the cube of death. Now, this device also allows me to pause the internet for either one of my kids whenever I want. I can do it at the touch of a button. Your internet is paused, stopped, right? My boys are 15 and 17, and you know, teenage boys, they, they, uh, they, they think they're pretty smart. Uh, I, I was a teenage boy once too, and I, and I thought I was pretty smart, but uh, I, they've reached the age where, this is what I fear about uh, artificial intelligence, where it becomes self-aware. My boys have become self-aware now hey, I know things too. And what they think they know often gets them into trouble. And to be fair, to be fair, I'm glad they know things. I'm glad they're getting smarter because the reality is we're trying to raise adults. We're trying to raise adults who can function on their own and one day, God willing, be the leaders of their own home. So it's good that they're getting smart, but they're absolutely under no circumstances allowed to be smart with their mom and dad, right? You know what I mean by being smart. I don't want any smart Alex in our house. So let me tell you how this works. If one of them gets a little too smart and they cross over into being disrespectful, in real time, without me having to say any words, I can take my phone out and pause their internet. And let me tell you, to a teenager, pausing the internet is like restricting the air that they breathe. And can I tell you, once I kill the internet, how quickly they turn into respectful young men. But depending on the infraction... That will determine the length of time I starve them of their access to the World Wide Web. And if the infraction is serious enough and they try and tell me, I'm sorry for my attitude, sometimes I tell them, oh, we're way past sorry. Depending on what they've done, sometimes I want them to feel the sting of their actions. But here's something else. It's not that I just want them to feel the sting. I want them to discover that there's a world out there apart from screens, apart from the internet. So you see, it's not just about punishment. There's something built into the disciplinary action that will also help them to flourish. 
I don't discipline my kids solely for the purpose of making them feel the sting. There's a productive rationale built into the judgment too. When the Lord first spoke these words to Isaiah, he was telling Isaiah to say these words to Israel. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This is the point the Lord has reached with his people in the Old Testament. After a repeated pattern of rebellion, over and over and over again, after a repeated pattern of rejection, it was time for them to feel the sting. In Isaiah's case, and then later when Jesus was saying these in, in reference to the religious leaders in the day as he, as he teaches parables, this is a pronouncement of judgment. This is a pronouncement of judgment because what was going on here is God saying, okay, these people don't want to hear my word, then I'm going to give them over to their disdain for my word. I'm going to give them over to their rebellion. I'm going to give them exactly what they're asking for. If they don't want to look at me, that's fine. I'm going to shut their eyes and harden their hearts. They're going to feel the sting of their actions now. And now, for the third time in the scriptures, the same audience each time, a judgment is being pronounced on those who refuse to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ as it confronts them to their face. Some were convinced, but others disbelieved, we're told. To some, the gospel is, is like medicine for the soul. It is medicine for the soul. To others, it's an affirmation of judgment. It's a picture in motion of God's judgment in action. It's like Paul finally telling him, okay, after all of this, after the number of times I've tried to explain this to you, after the number of times I've said it over and over again and you refuse to listen, okay, you're going to get what you want. If that's what you want, this is what you have. And it's very, very sad. But at the same time, it's very, very hopeful. If we're being honest, it, it doesn't sit well with us that the Lord, a good God, would tell anyone, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. But this seems to be his pattern. Yes, he will often allow his people to wander. He'll often allow you to wander. He'll allow you to wander to pursue what your heart's desire is. And in so doing, he allows you to feel the sting of your own actions as he gives us over to our own desires and our own will. But does he ever bring us back? When we read these words, it certainly makes it seem like Paul is effectively saying, okay, my Jewish friends, you had your chance, but now you've blown it. You're out. You're out for good. But remember the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Remember that one? It was a promise for the nations. And we can go to the very end. We can go to the very end in Revelation chapter 7, where we read verses 9 to 10, where it tells us the end, how it all ends up. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, as we read today, some were convinced. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Did the clock run out for Paul's Jewish audience at the end of the book of Acts? When does the Lord's clock run out? The pattern that we read about in the Old Testament tells us that God's people were miserably unfaithful. 
Yet we also read this also from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Lord also tells us in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So here's what this means. As the book of Acts comes to enclose, indeed, we, we, we read really sad words that speak of, of Paul telling the Jewish leaders, okay, I've said all I can say to you. If you're going to be stubborn and insist upon shaping God into your own image, so be it. Worship the God you want. And that God is you, by the way. But at the end of the book of Acts, Paul also says this, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Do you know why you're gathered here today? Do you know why we sit in these pews, we come together, we sing praise songs, we sing hymns, and listen to me talk about the book of Acts? Do you know why we're here? Because of that, because of that verse, verse 28. This salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And it's made it all the way here. It's made it all the way here to Nashville, Tennessee in the year 2023. From that spot where Paul sat in prison, the gospel went out. And that's the whole point of the book of Acts. How did the message of Jesus Christ's gospel, which started in a tiny sliver of land in the Middle East, make it all the way out to, to the far ends of the earth right here? Because of this passage. And because of verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came in, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And you know what happened when they came and listened to him? Then they went out. They went out to this corner and that corner of the earth. They reached the far ends of the earth. They reached the far ends of the earth, all nations. And so now you have this gospel. You have it. You have eyes to see and you have ears to hear. So, so what will you do with it? Where will you take it? Paul has shown us anything. If Paul has shown us anything, it's that there is no circumstance which prevents us from bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not hardship, not imprisonment, not, not beatings, not shipwrecks, not snake bites. Don't, don't go out handling snakes. That's not what this passage means. But nothing... Nothing at all. In fact, our hardships bear witness to the fact of the truth of what we believe. The fact that we go through hardships solidifies and brings credibility to what you believe. Who's willing to suffer for a lie? So where will you take it? Where will you take it? The Jewish leaders that stood before Paul, it says some were convinced, we're told. That means there were some who up until that point were convinced that Paul was a madman but eventually had the scales removed from their eyes, and now they see Jesus. I imagine each of us could think of a person who at first impulse we might say, oh, oh there's no way. Not that person. They're, they're hostile to everything I stand for. Maybe that person is you. Maybe you're hostile to it. We have to remember that it's not up to us to remove scales from eyes. It's not up to us to unstop the ears. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But what we have been entrusted with is repeating this message over 
and over and over and over again. It's the body of Christ given for us. It's the blood that was poured out for you. This is what makes us right before the Father. It's the body and blood of Christ that satisfies God's justice and the righteousness of Christ given to us that makes us forgiven and declared righteous. It's our job to repeat that over and over and over and over again because it's true. Because it's absolutely true. And as Acts teaches us, the world will hear it. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, thank you for who you are. You are sovereign. You are omnipotent. We praise you because you are a mighty God whose plans will not be thwarted. We thank you that this means that once you set your sights on, on people like me, people like us, your saving action will not return empty. Thank you. Thank you for setting the movement of the gospel in motion all the way back from an imprisoned follower of Christ and generation after generation after generation, it still goes forth. Help us to carry your message. Help us to be the instruments by which your kingdom is expanded. Regardless of what obstacles we face, may your gospel go forth until we bear witness to the day when that great multitude that no one will be able to number from every nation, tribe, and tongue rejoices before the Lamb who sits on the throne. And it's in the holy name of Jesus that we pray and thank you. Amen.